every once in a while when I'm preparing, whoops, that was almost a disaster. That would have been bad. Every once in a while when I'm preparing a sermon during the week, I'm a little intimidated by the subject matter, how vast it is and how deep and complex it can be. Um, and this week is one of those weeks. Uh, there's a lot in here that I'm really nervous about. I'm nervous about this not staying on, but we'll, we'll deal with it. So the week, uh, this week's message, we're continuing in our series on the Gospel of Mark. And the message that has me so intimidated, we're calling it Binding the Strong Man. Now, before we get started, I want you to know the previous verses, Matthew chapter 3, 13 to 19, I'm not preaching on that today, but it's basically the story of Jesus selecting the remaining five of the 12 apostles. And then it seems like to the naked eye, what seems to be a totally unrelated passage to the selecting of the 12 apostles, Mark moves to yet another confrontation between Jesus and the religious arrogant elite. And then it leads into this thing called the unpardonable sin. And to the untrained eye, it would seem like these are very different passages. Well, you got the selecting of the 12, and then you've got this ominous, intimidating theological concept that Jesus introduces called the unforgivable or unpardonable sin. And when you hear about this passage, what is your initial reaction to when you hear the phrase unpardonable sin? Do you see it as some somber, dark, burdensome warning? Do your ears really perk up? I was talking to a friend of mine. He says, I saw on Facebook you asked if I had committed unpardonable sin. I knew that mean I needed to be there, <laughs> you know? Because sometimes it makes your ears perk up. And so you have to make sure that you have good information to engage in the ultimate personal self-evaluation, which is, have I committed this intimidating, awesome, unpardonable sin? Have I committed it? I hope not. Pastor Joe, please explain this to me so that I can get rid of this anxiety. Say something encouraging so I know, whew, I have not done this unpardonable sin. I mean, Jesus is supposed to be here. His yoke is easy and his burden is light and grace and mercy and forgiveness. And then he throws in this unpardonable sin out of nowhere like a left hook when you're not even looking for it. Jesus, don't we have enough to worry about with our sinfulness? It's a frightening passage, right? Actually, no. Is it possible that the unpardonable sin was never meant to be a frightening concept? I mean, didn't Jesus say his burden was light? So with that in mind, let's look at the passage today in Mark chapter 3, verse 20 to 29. Then he, Jesus, went home. Home is Nazareth, where he was born. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went outside to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. This is Jesus' family, his half-brother, saying, our brother is a lunatic. We've got to get him away from the crowd. This is what's going on. Just get, you get, get the flavor of it. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by demons. This is right after he's healed the man with the withered hand and called the twelve. And the, the religious say he's, he's demon-possessed. 
And by the prince of demons, Satan, he is able to cast out these demons. And he called them all to him. It's funny, right? So his family says, you're a lunatic. The Pharisees say, you're possessed by the devil. He says, hey, everybody, settle down and come here. Let me, let me explain something to you. And he said to them, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom will not stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand. But is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder. By the way, plunder is a military word. It means to take goods and spoils from battle. So what he's talking about here is definitely a military flavor. No one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So the question is, what if most people have gotten the point of the unpardonable sin completely wrong? What if the unpardonable sin is actually not really the focus of this passage? Which, by the way, is inexplicably tied to this calling of the 12 right before that we just skipped. So let's look at the history of the passage today. I want to talk about skeptical Nazareth. It's his own hometown. So they invite him as a guest speaker. Because, you know, he's getting pretty popular. Hey, he's one of our own. Let's have him come in. And a guest speaker meant that you would come into the synagogue and you would read a certain portion of Scripture. So right after, he calls the rest of his apostles. And his expectation is, look, I've called you to be my 12. You need to be all in. That's the point, right? They're all in. They're giving up their livelihoods to follow Jesus. Then he goes back to Nazareth. And Luke tells us that Jesus was invited back to the synagogue where he grew up to read the scriptures to the congregation. And this is what Luke says he read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's reading from Isaiah. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering the sight of the blind to set up liberty to those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. Let me stop there for a minute and explain this to you. It was a tradition for guest speakers. They were invited for this, not really to preach. They were invited to come to the synagogue and read this passage in Isaiah. And the rote kind of ceremonious thing they would do is, after they read this passage, they would all say, so come Messiah, what a great day that will be. So he's reading this passage in Isaiah that says, this is what's going to happen. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Proclaim the good news, the liberty, the captives, recovering the sight of the blind, to set the liberty at those who are oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And look what happens. Then he rolls up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him because they expect him to say something. That's his mode of operation. And here's what he says. Instead of saying, you know, because everybody was supposed to say, well, were you looking forward to that day, right? That's, instead, what he says is, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today is the day that guy I was just reading about that Isaiah was talking about would come, that Messiah, he's here. 
I, Jesus, am fulfilling this prophecy right before your eyes. I'm making the blind to see. I'm setting free the oppressed. I'm bringing liberty and forgiveness, help to the poor. And so then we see the blasphemous elites, their response. The religious can't deny the power in his miracles, the healing and the casting out of demons. So they try to accuse him of doing this through demonic power. They're basically calling him Satan. The only reason this guy, Jesus, can do all that is because he's got the magic of the devil in him. Now everyone's triggered. <laughs> the elites whip up a mob in an attempt to kill him right then and there. His family is frightened. They see what's going on. They hear what Jesus says. They think he's a lunatic. He, can you believe this Jesus half-brother of ours is saying that he's Messiah? How stupid is that? So they try to intervene to save him from the mob because, you know, they know best. They're no doubt frustrated. They just created this mess. And they're probably definitely genuinely concerned for what it means for them but they're also probably genuinely concerned for Jesus. They think Jesus is mentally ill. And they want to get Jesus away from the mob that the Pharisees have created because his crazy talk about being Messiah is out of control. Now, of course, Mary knew Jesus wasn't insane because of the angel, remember? But they weren't listening to her. She's just a mom going to defend her boy. Can you imagine Mary? I wrote this down. So imagine Mary trying to explain this. No, no, no. He isn't a lunatic. He's your half brother. The Holy Spirit made me pregnant. Then your dad adopted him, raised him as his own. He's the son of God. He's Messiah. Mom, you're as nuts as he is. The Holy Spirit gave you a baby. Imagine being the 12 apostles. They've just been called to give up their life and follow Jesus. And now they find out his own family thinks he's a lunatic. The mob thinks he's a heretic. What have we gotten ourselves into? So that's the history of what's going on. I want to talk about the spiritual. What about Jesus? What does he do? I want to talk about Jesus and evil. First of all, this idea of a house divided. You guys remember uh, Mark the Evangelist on Twitter? He's making these great tweets and, and these pictures. I don't know where he gets these pictures from. He's got some really cool Instagram filters on his phone. But you can see those. Uh, he had some great tweets. If you're not following Mark the Evangelist, it gives you something to think about during the week as we prepare to worship together. And so we see this house divided with these two distinct rejections, right? He's rejected by his family. And rejected by these religious elite, Jesus, of course, as usual, sees an incredible teaching opportunity. So he says, yo, everyone come here. He doesn't run from it. He's like glutton for punishment, I guess, this guy. He says, listen, family, Pharisees, everybody gather together. He's about to drop otherworldly truth through logical, perfect deconstruction of their absurd claims. But the house is divided, and he talks about binding Satan. To illustrate the spiritual battle happening at the moment, right there, he uses the picture of a strong man, which is another term for king or ruler or governor. So sometime before creation, let me accept the scene, sometime before creation, Satan was thrown out of heaven, 
And since then, to this point where Jesus is now here, he's been walking to and fro on the earth, and he's furious, and he's angry. Remember the story of Job? The story of Job, Satan's walking to and fro, seeking who he may destroy. So right now, in this moment where Jesus comes, it's a very dark time in the world. There's no medical science. There's sickness. There's disease all over. There's an oppressive Roman government that sees people as nothing more than resources and assets to further their kingdom. There's religious deception in the temple. The strong man's dominion is vast. The strong man's dominion at this point in history is very deep. It is very powerful. But Jesus arrives on the, on the scene and things are about to change dramatically. I want you to note the word kingdom in all this. It is very crucial to understanding this entire passage and this mysterious, burdensome thing called the unpardonable sin. He explains that Satan's dominion collapses if Satan is fighting against himself. He says, look, if Satan's trying to cast himself out, banishing himself from his own strongholds, he's not going to last. But if you're going to be so audacious as to go into the strong man's kingdom and plunder his stuff, remember again, I told you it's a military term, here's what you got to do. Because the strong man's not going to deconstruct his own security. The strong man's not going to invite you in. The strong man is not going to start fighting against himself. The strong man is not going to make it easy for you to go into his kingdom. So here's what you got to do. You better tear down his security system first. You better tear down his strongholds first. Tear down his walls. Break down his defenses. Then once you have done that and you have bound him, tied him up, then you can go and start to take over his realm. For this new kingdom to advance, he says, the ruler of this present darkness, the one that was there when Jesus was coming to earth, this present darkness, the ruler of this must be bound first. So what does that mean? What does it mean, bind the strong man, bind Satan? Here's what Jesus is saying in this whole thing. He's responding to their claim that, you know, he's doing this because he's possessed. He says, no, 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 you don't get it. I, in casting out demons and taking on evil head to head, I am binding Satan this very moment so that my kingdom can begin to advance on his to all corners of the earth. That's what he's saying. As a matter of fact, John talks about this in Revelation chapter 21 through three, one through three. Here's, here's what happens. This is what John sees in his dream, and it's not a... Prophecy of something to come. It's something that has already happened. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding his hand to the key of the bottomless pit and the great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him. See the similarities between the teachings? Bound him for a thousand years. That's the millennium. That's the church age. That's what we're in right now. And threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. And in Luke, just to make sure you understand, I'm not lying to you. Here's what he says in Luke chapter 11, verse 20, which is a parallel passage of this story in Mark. Here's what Jesus says. But it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God can come upon you. 
here's a great illustration of what I'm trying to say. So a few years ago, we got a new pool table at the Nightlife Center, and it was uneven. And it was really bothering me, you know, because I'm seriously OCD about I don't even play pool. I just didn't like it that it was uneven. So I said, Dylan, I need you to come here and lift up. This pool table's big and it's heavy. I need you to lift up this pool table. I'm going to get under and, and put these things that balance it out underneath it, right? And I have to trust that while I'm underneath this pool table, which, by the way, has the ability to absolutely annihilate and crush your pastor, I have to trust that Dylan is going to hold back the weight of that table from crushing me while I do my work. That's what Jesus is saying is happening here. I am binding Satan so that my 12 and those who I call after them can do their work. And it's an important mission because Jesus is preparing the, the coming battlefield for the mission he is about to give his apostles and his church. And what mission is that? Get ready for this. Wait for it. This is absolutely beautiful, and it will send chills up and down your spine. Are you ready? What mission is that? Binding Satan for what mission? Deceiving the nations? What's that all about? Now the 11, this is because Judas is gone. The 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, they worshipped him, but some doubted. But Jesus came to them and said, all authority, the strong man, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am holding the pool table from crushing you always, <laughs> even to the end of the age. Do you see how beautiful that is? What Jesus is talking about in this passage about the unpardonable sin is not, you better not do this one, like the apple in the tree in the Garden of Eden. That's not what he's saying. He's saying a house divided against itself cannot stand. Demons cannot cast each other out. And people who have been chosen by God cannot deny the work of the Holy Spirit, because if they could, that would be unpardonable. And he says... If you're going to go into the kingdom of the strong man, you got to bind him up first. You got to hold him back because, by the way, he could crush you at any moment. He's that powerful. But I got you. I'm there always, even to the end of the age, while you go and make disciples. Go do the work. I will hold him back. I will keep it secure. I will keep him away from you while you do your job. Isn't that beautiful? This is what he's talking about in this passage. Not the unpardonable sin. He's talking about the kingdom of God and how he is supplanting the kingdom of Satan. This is a direct correlation to the Great Commission that I just read. When he told us to take the gospel to his elect in all nations. He is with us always to the end of the age with that power that binds the strong man. He is declaring the purpose. And here's the purpose. You ready? He's coming for his children. And not just Jews, but Gentiles. That's why he's concerned about all nations. It doesn't mean that everyone follows Christ. It simply means this. Evil is bound, and it is powerless to deceive God's chosen among the nations. That's what it means. During this time... I'm going to make sure that all the Father has given me will come. 
Go do the work. I'm holding back this strong man while you go plunder his goods. It is a matter of fact, it is the foundation for the parable that we'll learn about in the future about the wheat and the tares. Some of you have heard me teach that called the wheat and the weeds. How the wheat, representing God's children, live side by side with the tares growing up together until the time is right when the harvester comes and takes the wheat and puts it in his storehouse forever and he takes the tares and gathers them up and puts them in the threshing floor or the burning floor. It's the wheat and the weeds living side by side. It's one of the beautiful kingdom mysteries. All of this is related to this idea of binding the straw man, taking over his kingdom and the unpardonable sin. He's saying, my kingdom is now. I am supplanting the strong man, Satan. I am making inroads into his domain. The gospel is moving forward. I am calling my sheep from the nations, and I will stop the enemy from deceiving them. He will not be able to win this battle. So with that in mind, I want to talk about the personal application. What about us? That was a lot of theology, by the way. I hope you were able to follow it. I know it's complicated and complex, and you can see why I'm nervous about it, but it's a lot. And it's deep. It's like seminary-level stuff. But here is the personal. I want to talk about the impossible sin. Not the unpardonable sin, but the impossible one. It seems this passage is about impossible forgiveness, right? Like, you can't be forgiven, but it's actually the reverse. Here was the, the uh, Twitter thing I put up this week, the uh, social media campaign. Overcoming evil, especially your own, requires power much greater than religion. So here's a question for you. Are you forgivable? Before we get started with the real part of the application of the personal side I want to get to, let me just try to get any unpardonable sin fear out of the way so that you can focus on what this passage is really teaching you. Jesus says all manner of sin and even blasphemy can be forgiven, except one. Uh Uh-oh, did I do it? Worry, 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 worry. Well, let's talk about the Greek word. Blasphemia, that's the Greek word, blasphemy. You can see how very close it is. Slander, detraction, speech injurious to another's good name. Impious and reproachful speech. It's injurious speech. That's what he's talking about. The unpardonable sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's the ultimate attention grabber, frankly, and it's a brilliant teaching tactic, is it not? The unpardonable sin isn't an ominous standalone warning. It is directly tied and connected to the calling of the twelve and this story of the rival two kingdoms where you have to bind one for the other one to take over. It's all woven into one beautiful message. The unpardonable sin is an illustration with a larger teaching about these rival kingdoms. How one ruler binds the other one. The unpardonable sin is Jesus talking about what occurs if you've been given full revelation and still reject the Spirit's call. But just as Satan's kingdom couldn't stand if it was divided, guess what? The same is true for God's kingdom and those he has called into it. Paul uses two very clear hypothetical straw man uh, illustrations to show 
and to relieve God's children of this fear of, un, of committing the unpardonable sin. Let me read these passages to you in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard. And he's saying, look, you've heard this salvation. We can't escape if you deny it. But look what he says in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. It's a hypothetical. For it is impossible. It is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God, and the powers of the age to come, the kingdom and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. In other words, it's impossible for God's kingdom to be divided. This does not mean that you become a Christian and then struggle with sin again. That's not what it means. Of course we're going to struggle with sin. Of course we're going to fall. Of course we're going to stumble. We live in a world that is designed to make us stumble. But what he's saying is it is impossible if this were to happen, if somebody were to be a full-blown child of God, then all of a sudden say, nah, I don't want him anymore. He says they couldn't be saved again because it would crucify Christ again to an open shame. Here's what he's saying. The kingdom of heaven cannot be divided. It's either all in or all out. Faith is full and complete in its work every time. The unpardonable sin of rejecting the work of the Holy Spirit is in fact, and I'll show you this, an impossible sin for God's chosen. They all will be forgiven. It's like Jesus is teaching it's impossible for Satan to work against his kingdom. It just can't happen. Jesus has restricted the enemy from causing this. I mean, look, it's hard to deny, right, that evil exists. Even atheists accept the premise that there's evil in the world. Of course there's still evil. Of course darkness is still active. And it would love nothing more than to cause God's chosen children to commit the unpardonable sin. To miss out on forgiveness. But the fact is, when it comes to the gospel and its active power to save God's chosen, Satan will never be able to deceive God's kids. More from Jesus on this topic. John 6, 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, <clears throat> and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I've got Satan bound so that those whom God has given to me, oh, they're going to make it. Oh, they're coming. Yeah, exactly. John chapter 10, 27 to 30. My, I love this one. I love this. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand because Satan, the strong man, is bound. I'm coming in, I'm getting my people, and there's nothing he can do about it. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. He's stronger than the strong man. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hands. And I and the father are one. Isn't that tremendous? How can we commit the unpardonable sin? 
According to Jesus' words, there's nothing the enemy can do to make that happen. If he could, trust me, he would. And while evil can still deceive the tares, the enemy is powerless to silence God's call to the wheat and their response to it. There is no unpardonable sin for the wheat. All right. Kingdom advancing. So what is the main application for you today from this passage, if, if it isn't some sort of somber warning? This passage for fret and worry over an unpardonable sin? Or is it for excitement? For rejoicing? Church, your Jesus has bound the strong man. He has publicly put down in this story the first, if you will, tent stakes of the kingdom that was to replace the realm of darkness that dominated everything at the time. This is a direct connection to the calling of the 12 apostles and their great commission and our calling to the same. I mean, look around, just practically speaking. The gospel is spreading, calling all of God's children, no matter what nation they may reside, God is calling people in Muslim that if there was ever a place where God could keep, or where the enemy could keep God's children from following him, it would be in a Muslim nation. He can't. He's bound. African nations, China and Asia, God is calling his children from all those countries, South America, North America, Europe. It's advancing everywhere. There are people being saved by the gospel in all four corners of the world. But what's great about this kingdom is it, it, its advance is not just global, but get this, it's not just global, but it's also intimate and personal in the individual very hearts of those whom he has chosen, whom the Father has given to him that no one can pluck out of his hand. And why is that? Because Satan is bound. And the spirit has been poured out and it, in, it, is, it is at work in us. And he's holding back the strong man. And we have been called to this spiritual battle while he's holding back the forces. We've been called to this spiritual battle and we have been given the tools. And Jesus is holding back the strong man while we can use them. Ephesians 6.12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, hmm? but against rulers, strong men. You see how it all works together? But against rulers, against authorities, strong men. Against the cosmic powers over this darkness, spiritual strong men. Against the spiritual forces of evil, Satan. In the heavenly places, here's what Paul is saying. Our battle is waging right now. It is against forces of darkness. We are taking the gospel. We are running with it. And Jesus is holding back the strong man. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10, this is a really good one. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but they have divine power to what? Destroy strongholds. Amen. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's a pretty thorough butt kicking if you ask me. Being ready to punish every disobedience, it doesn't mean like religion. When your obedience is complete. 
The Lord is on the offense, church. The kingdom is advancing. The gates of hell will not prevail. He is tearing them to shreds. He is casting out evil wherever necessary. He's tearing down the strongholds in nations and in individual hearts so that his children will not be denied their forgiveness, their redemption. And he has called us to take the message of irresistible forgiveness to all his other children. He has called us to go and overrun the strong man's realm because he's holding evil down until our mission is done. Man, Jesus, I'm so thankful that you have bound the strong man to keep him from deceiving the elect. I thank you for the honor and privilege you give us in being able to be a part of this calling of your children, the ones you say that no one can pluck out of your hand, the ones you say that all will come to you. I'm so thankful for that, Dad, and I'm so thankful, Jesus, that you have done the work, you've prepared the battlefield, you've laid the groundwork, you've pulled back the defenses of the dark ones so that we can advance with the message of hope and redemption. And while we are aware there's still evil in the world, we know this, your word will never return empty. It always accomplishes every bit of the purpose it's designed to. Why? Because you have bound a very frustrated, discouraged, and angry strong man who is powerless to stop your plan of redemption for your children that you chose before the foundation of the world.